morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. On the uh, eve of this new year, I decided I want to talk to you about what I think will be uh, probably the most important decision that you and I will make in the coming year. Now, it won't be what you think it will be. It won't be probably any of the big decisions that we might face, maybe about our families or about our finances or maybe about our careers. Uh, it won't be any of the resolutions that we make, no matter how good they are and no matter how well we keep them. Now, these are, of course, important decisions, and it's key that we make these decisions well, but they are not the most important of all decisions. And the reason is because we're just not in charge of the future. And the big decisions that we make, while they are important, they, they just don't have the power that we tend to think that they do. This is what we read uh, in God's Word in Proverbs 16, verse 9, about this. It says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Now, if you've lived very long, you've experienced this again and again. You make plans, you, you, you chart a course, and then you kind of end up going over here. Not because you made a change in your mind, but because God put together circumstances and situations where this was really no longer available, and you ended up heading this way. That's what this verse is talking about. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't make plans. It's good to make plans. I've got a lot of plans for 2018, both personally and then for here as a church, and we're excited about these plans. But just like it was this year, 2017, and really every year that I can remember, there's going to be a lot of surprises. Things that you plan that just don't happen, and things that you never plan that suddenly come up. And the Lord himself will determine what actually happens, where the steps fall. And so it's how you and I decide to respond to all of these twists and all of these turns that I think is the most important decision that we make. Will we surrender our plans to God's plan, or will we just keep trying to push ours through, keep trying to impose our will on the future? Now, if we surrender, we get to see God at work through us. We get to see God's even better plan unfold than our plan. But if we refuse to surrender, boy, it's, it's going to be a tough year. We're going to become angry. Some of us might even just kind of become passive, just give up. What does it matter? It doesn't matter. I'm not even going to try anymore. A lot of us, if we don't surrender, we're just going to become stressed out of our mind as we try to just impose our will on the future and make our plans work. Now, I don't know about you, but I wasn't surprised just a handful of times this past year. I was surprised a lot. In fact, I would venture to say that I was surprised pretty much on a daily basis. I mean, they, they weren't all big surprises, but I, I think if you're honest, most days you wake up, you've got a plan, you've got a schedule, and you encounter at least one, if not a number of surprises in any given day. And so when it comes to this decision to surrender to God, it, it's not just a New Year's Eve decision where we make it and we all agree, all right, we're going to surrender to God in 2018. Now, we're, we're going to have to wake up tomorrow and surrender tomorrow. And then Tuesday, we're going to have to surrender Tuesday and then Wednesday. And it, it's going to go on for 365 days next year. Because that's how often our plans change and a surprise derails what we were hoping to accomplish. And this kind of daily decision to surrender to God is described by Jesus in a very interesting way. Here's what he says in Luke 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, this is the crowd of followers who were following him. Uh, a number of them were serious about following Jesus. Most of them were just kind of looky-loos, kind of 
you know, observing this new phenomenon that was Jesus. So he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if you want to keep following me, you must deny yourself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, when Jesus first said these words, nobody knew exactly what he meant. I mean, they, they knew what a cross was. They, they'd all seen plenty of crucifixions in this period of time in the Roman Empire. And they knew what it meant to take up a cross because everyone that was crucified was required to pick up their own cross and carry it to the site of their execution. So they know what Jesus meant when, it, when he talked about a cross, and they knew what it meant to take up a cross, to pick it up and carry it. But this daily part made no sense at all. In their experience, a person could only take up a cross once on the way to their own crucifixion. And after that, they were dead. So they couldn't wake up the next morning and take up another cross. You only get one cross. So it wasn't until after Jesus took up a cross, carried it to his own death, and rose again that this statement began to make sense. The decision that Jesus made to to take up his cross was a surrender decision. It had many facets to it. And it's best summarized by the last words that Jesus spoke on that cross. Here's what Jesus said on that cross, his last words. Luke 23, 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, quote, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he'd said this, he breathed his last. Now, you may have heard these words. They're often spoken either at a funeral service or maybe a, a burial committal service uh, where whoever's in charge will, will pray this prayer and they will commit the spirit of the departed uh, individual into the hands of God. So what does it mean, though, to commit your spirit into the hands of God? Well, it means to surrender to God. And whenever we place something into God's hands, what we're saying is, God, this is up to you now. Now, when we die, it's obvious that it's all up to God now. I mean, our hands don't move anymore. We we can't do anything. The life that was in our hands to do with as we please is clearly no longer in our hands. It's now in God's hands. But our, our dying is not a chosen act of surrender to the Father like it was for Jesus. You know, death happens to all of us at a time of God's choosing, whether we want it to or not. But for Jesus, death was a choice because he was God in flesh. It was a surrender decision. So unlike Jesus, we don't get surrender points for dying. That's that's just going to happen. We decide whether or not we are going to surrender our life to the Father on a daily basis while we are still alive. This is why Jesus said you need to take up your cross daily. That's the decision that we make. And this honestly was the way it was for Jesus too. I mean, death wasn't just a singular act of surrender for Jesus. It was the final act in a long life of surrender. Many, many decisions, daily decisions that Jesus made to surrender to the will of his Father. And his final words on the cross are the words really that we need to say on a daily basis. Like Jesus said, we take up a cross, not just on New Year's Eve, not just on New Year's Day, but every day this year. And we need to say these words. Father, into your hands, I commit my life. In other words, I surrender this day to you. I surrender my life to you. Now, but just saying these words doesn't mean we've actually surrendered. 
the decision to surrender to God really consists of four daily surrender decisions. And each decision was a part of the decision that Jesus made when he took up his cross and carried it to the site of his execution. That was a single act, but there was a lot leading up to that moment. And that's true for us every day. Now, to help you understand and remember each of these four, I'm going to give you a physical posture that represents each of these acts of surrender. These postures have been helpful for me over and over again in this past year. Now, we, we are both body and soul. We're, we're not just spiritual beings. We're physical beings. We have bodies and we have souls. And so when our body gets involved, it gets more real. If it's just spirit, just thought, you know, it's real, but it's not as real. It's kind of a thought, not reality. That's why I think these postures are so helpful for us to, to remember and then to actually take the steps of surrender on a daily basis. So we're going to look at these four postures this morning. Posture number one is bow your head. Bow your head. Now, for each one of these postures, uh, I'm going to give you a word that represents what that is that we are surrendering, what this posture surrendering uh, represents. And the words all begin with the letter W. And so the W word for the posture of bowing your head is will. Will. Bowing your head is the posture of submitting one will to another's will. It's submitting our will to God's will. Now, you've probably bowed your head in this manner before, other than just to God. You know, let's, let's say someone is walking towards the same door that you're walking towards, and you just pause and you do this. What does that mean? Everybody knows what that means, right? What you've just said without saying anything by just simply kind of bowing your head slightly is you're saying what to the other person? All right. You go first. I am surrendering my will, in this case, to get through that door, to your will to get through the same door. You go ahead. Your will be done. You, you, you go ahead of me. We just kind of bow our heads. Without saying a word, the message is clear. Now, the cross was a surrendered decision for Jesus. As I said, he, he was not a victim. You know, for us, it's not really a decision to die. It just happens. But for Jesus, it was a surrender decision. He was not a victim of the moment. Now, people who didn't understand that he was God in flesh may look and see, well, he, he just got shanghaied by you know, the, the crowd and, and by Pilate and all these other circumstances. It looked like he was a victim, but if you understand who he was, he was not a victim at all. He knew exactly what was coming. He could have at least skipped town and avoided it, but he didn't. You know, at supper on the night before of his arrest or his, the, the night of his arrest and the night before his crucifixion, he actually got in detail about what was going to happen the next day. He declared who would betray him, how they would betray him, how they would deny him at his trial, that Peter would deny him, in fact, three times, the exact timing of his last denial. And then he broke bread at the beginning of the meal and said, this is exactly, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen to my body. And then at the end of the meal, he poured wine into a cup and said, this is what's going to happen to my blood. It's going to be poured out. So the cross was not a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't, he didn't wake up the next day and was blindsided by the events. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And like anyone facing such an awful death, 
He didn't want to do it. Any sane person would have wanted to avoid that day. So he went to the Garden of Gethsemane after that Passover meal, and he asked three of his disciples to come with him so that they could watch out for him and they could pray for him. And here's what we read in Matthew 26, 39, explaining that, that scene. It says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup was an image of drinking all of the circumstances all the way down to the bitter bottom that was going to happen with his crucifixion. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus settled it then and there. He surrendered to the Father's will. Now, why didn't Jesus just kind of look up to heaven and say these words to the Father, kind of arms outstretched? That would have been a great movie scene, right? So why didn't he do it this way? Why did he, as it says here, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed? Well, face down was the posture that best fit these words. Head bowed, face to the ground. That's a sign of surrender. And so now, 2,000 years later, we follow our Lord's example. We lower our head and we say, Father, not as I will today, but as you will. Now, we don't have anywhere near the clear view of the future that Jesus had. We don't know the details of what's coming our way like Jesus did. But we certainly can tell when our will isn't happening, can't we? I mean, we know in an instant when our plans are unraveling. When our thoughts about what was going to happen are not met, our expectations are thwarted. And when our plans fail, we tend to look up in anger at God. Or maybe out in anger at whoever it is that's thwarting our plans or getting in the way of what we want. We can either do that, we can look up or out in anger, or we can at that moment bow our heads and surrender and accept that God's doing something here. That God's plan is best. And then when we go about making our plans, we, we do it with a bowed head. In other words, when we look out on our world and we project our will into the future and we make our plans, that's what we do. That's fine to do. But when we do it, we, we bow first. And we bow often. What I mean by that is we, we don't just make plans independently. We, we bow and we ask God to guide us in our making of plans. Because the last thing that we want to do is anything other than what God wants us to do. A horrible day would be us just doing whatever we want. A, a great day is us doing what it is that God wants us to do. And so we bow as we make our plans. And then we don't just make our plans all by ourselves. You know, to protect us from doing our own thing, we, we do like Jesus did. We ask others to come with us and watch our life and, and pray with us. You see, in isolation, our will goes unchallenged. No one can speak into our lives or question our plans, but if we really want God's will, we will bow in the company of others, not just independently. We will ask other people who know us and who know God to, to watch us, to speak into our lives. We will go to them for input as we make our plans. And we will ask them to pray for us, and we will pray for them as they make their plans. It's amazing to me how many people 
really wanting to follow God, just never ask for any input as they make really pretty big decisions in life. They just kind of go with their gut. But Jesus himself, when he submitted to the Father, he asked three guys to come with him. Hey, could you guys watch and pray with me? And we need to do the same. Doesn't need to be three, but there needs to be some people that in this new year watch over us and pray for us and we for them. If we're going to really bow our heads in reality, not just nod occasionally. So posture number one is we bow our head. We submit our will to the will of the Father. The second posture is we close our eyes. The W word for this is wait. We wait for God's timing. You know, when you close your eyes, what happens to your body? It stops moving, right? Because you can't see what's in front of you. So you're not very smart if, if you're walking and, and suddenly you close your eyes and you just keep, keep up the same pace. Yeah, that's a way to get hurt. So you have to sit still until you open your eyes again. So when we close our eyes before God, what we're really doing is we are surrendering the future to him. We, we are surrendering really our schedule, our sense of timing to his sense of timing. You know, it's our schedule that moves us into the future. You know, this coming week, I've got stuff on my calendar. And it's that schedule that I wake up in the morning, and it, I just move through my day working my schedule. And that, that's fine. That's great. But it's easy in the process of cranking out our schedules to forget that God himself has a calendar as well. And it turns out his calendar is the master calendar. Mine's just the, well, let's try this calendar. He's got a master schedule. And whenever our schedule is blocked, really what's going on is God is saying, all right, wait just a minute here. I'm doing something else. I may tell you what it is, or you may have no idea what it is, but all you need to know right now is just, just wait on this. You need to surrender your timetable to me. Now, the example of Jesus doing this was, was pretty interesting. You got a real sense of that he was operating on, uh, on a schedule that wasn't just of his own making. One of the best examples, I think, of this is what happened in arranging the details for this Passover meal that I just mentioned that he had with his disciples. Here's how it was set up. It's mentioned in Matthew 26, verse 18. So he told his disciples this. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, that's Jesus, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now, there's a lot about this that's pretty interesting. First of all, Jesus describes his death on the cross as what? An appointment. My appointed time is, is near. In other words, the idea is that God had a specific time in mind for the crucifixion of his son. And the cross wasn't the only appointment that God had on his calendar that year or even that decade. God's calendar is, it's got incredible detail to it. Because if you look in this, before Jesus talks about his appointed time, he says, I want you to go into the city and meet who? A certain man. Now just imagine, you're one of the disciples, and Jesus tells you to go in the city and meet a certain man. What's your next question going to be? Who? What's his name? Where can I find him? Not just a certain man. Well, I don't know if I'm going to get the right one. Just a certain man. Well, 
there were a few more details involved, and we get some of these details from the Gospel of Mark's recollection of what occurred. And here's what Mark says about this very same scene. Mark 14, 13 through 16, Jesus sent two of disciples, his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went to the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. Now, just, just let this sink in. I mean, this is, this is amazing detail here. I mean, again, just imagine, even if you've gotten this detail, it's like, well, <laughs> which street am I supposed to walk on, and, and what's the timing? And I mean, just think of the, the precision that needed to occur here. Jesus didn't give them an address. Go to this house and knock on the door and say, hey, apparently you got a room all ready to go. We just need to use it. That in itself would be bizarre. But he didn't give them an address. He just said, no, you need to look for the guy carrying a jar of water. Well, this is not going to work, Jesus. I, I need some more details here. That'll work. This is a series of precision-timed events that had to happen in order for that to work. I mean, if you look at my calendar, it's blocked out in 30-minute increments. Most appointments are at least an hour. I've got longer chunks of time for some study, but I generally don't schedule anything less than 30 minutes. What were the increments of this event? Seconds, right? God's calendar goes down to the seconds. You know, the meeting between this man had to occur within a window of, of just one or two seconds. I mean, if, if the timing had been off, either for the disciples or this man walking, they would never have run into each other. I mean, just, just think of, if you're the person directing this event, and you can say, you know, to the guy with the jar of water, cue the, cue the water guy, and then cue the disciples, and you got the timing right just as they cross each other at this particular intersection, I mean, you might do that scene 10 times and only get it right twice. But this was just a one-time occurrence. A slight delay, and they wouldn't have met. So if you just think about it, this is just a little window into God's calendar. All of this detailed timing was involved just to find a place to eat, the Passover meal. So let's fast forward it to... Now, what does that mean for the details of your life in the coming year? You know what that means? There is no need for you to panic. There's no reason for you to be impatient. There's no reason for us to worry. God's timetable is on track. And he never misses an appointment. Now, I, I do have to warn you this. God does not move at our pace. He moves in greater detail than we do, but not at the timetables that we tend to have. God moves at his pace. And God's pace tends to just move slower than we'd like it to be. Now, sometimes it can move real fast. You know, things you can, you've been waiting for for years all of a sudden just kind of oh, occur really quickly. But often when things happen, it's long after you had hoped they would have happened. I mean, you see this over and over again if you read through the pages of the Bible, the stories in the Bible. 
I mean, just a couple examples. Abraham, God approaches Abraham and says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of, of a nation. His wife is really old, and they have no kids. But Abraham believed him. How many years later, before they had their firstborn son? 30 years. I mean, we have a hard time waiting 30 days for anything in this culture. 30 years. I mean, we would prefer, look, God, if you could just, you know, don't mess with me 30 years early. Just tell me the year it's going to happen at least. No. He approaches Abraham and says, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. 30 years later, he does it. He tells Moses, Moses, you're going to be the one that's going to free my people from slavery in Egypt. How long does Moses have to wait for that to occur? 40 years. So the next time things are not going according to your schedule, bow your head and surrender to God's will, and then close your eyes and surrender your appointment calendar, your timetable to God's, and just say, God, I'll wait. Your timing is best. Posture number three, open your hands. Open your hands. The W word for this posture is what? No? Sorry, that's the next one. The W word for this posture is want, W-A-N-T, as in what you want. You know, when, when we close our hands, we're holding on to something. When we open our hands, we're letting it go. And when we open our hands before God, we're surrendering what we want to Him. What we're saying is, God, this is in my hand, but I'll give this to you if you want me to give it to you. I'll let go of that if you want me to let go of that. And that's a big move because what we tend to do is we tend to find some people and some situations and some things, a lot, a lot of it's financial things, and, and we, we grab onto it really, really tight, desperately, in fact. And when God sees the white knuckles around something that we're desperately holding on to, he realizes, oh, no, they're treating that thing like a god. And so God begins to pry the fingers loose. You know, in my experience, it's just a whole lot easier and less painful to just open your hands to God rather than have him pry them open. When he pries them open, oh, that hurts. It's much easier just to open your hands to God and say, God, I, I trust you. In fact, you know, this was Jesus' first act of surrender, was this open-handedness. Before he even was born, on that first, what we now celebrate as Christmas, we read this in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You see, in order for Jesus to actually take up a cross and walk up to that hill 2,000 years ago, he had to first take on a body. In order to do that, he had to let go of being divine in heaven. Now talk about letting go. I mean, he went from creator to being born. 
He went from power to weakness. And this was not just a one-time decision. You see, at any time during the 33 years that Jesus lived here, he could have said, all right, I'm done. Enough of this. Back to heaven for me. But he didn't. Why? Because as it says in this verse, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be white-knuckled and held on to it. He freely let it go so that his sinless life could pay the eternal debt of our sinful lives. And then, and this is, this is just hard to get your minds around, on the cross, he endured the ridicule of those that he had created. People who were breathing because of his power were spitting on him. <laughs> No one's ever let so much go. No one's ever given up so much as Jesus had. And as it says in this verse, our attitude should be like the one we follow. So where are your white knuckles on this New Year's Eve? What, what are you grasping? What in your heart of hearts is, I've got to hold on to this? I, I would recommend that you open your hands. And you surrender that. Then the last posture is get on your knees. The W word for this posture is what? As in what, God, do you want me to do now? See, kneeling is the posture of a servant. We don't have kings and queens and we're not very familiar with court etiquette. But subjects, whenever they approach the king or the queen, they would kneel before royalty as an indication that they were servants and they, they were ready to, in a moment's notice, do whatever was commanded of them. And so when we kneel before God, we're taking this posture before the king of kings, the posture of a servant, and we're saying, Father, we will arise from our knees and do whatever you want us to do. Your voice is our command. This was the posture that Jesus took in this world to the Father. He came in obedience to his Father to do the will of his Father, to serve us. And he makes it clear to everyone who's going to follow him that we are to, like him, take this kneeling, serving position. Here's how he describes it in Matthew 20, 25-28. Jesus called them together. Now, you have to realize the context is they've all been talking about, you know, when Jesus finally rules, where are they going to be in the cabinet, so to speak, after Jesus? And so Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Why? Just as the Son of Man, that was a phrase Jesus used to describe himself. Just as I did not come to be served. Now, I certainly could have, but I came to serve. To the point of giving my life as a ransom for many. So what he's saying is, you guys, it's pretty much upside down from this world. And nothing has really changed in this world. The culture is very different than it was back then. But this is about the same. Greatness in the eyes of the world is obtained by climbing 
elevating status, being able to tell more and more people what to do. But before God, it's obtained by descending, by serving. You know, the week before Christmas, I was talking with a volunteer here who does a lot of of work to help maintain this campus. And I just thanked him for what he did. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm just a small part of what goes on here. And he's right. And he said something that really caught my attention. He said, you know, I think most people at Seabreeze have very little idea of all that goes on behind the scenes every week to make Seabreeze go. And I thought, you know, he's exactly right. In fact, I'm the senior pastor here, and I have no idea of all that goes on. People, you know, increasingly ask me questions. I'm like, I don't know. Ask this person. They know. I don't. I know what I need to know, but when you stop and think about, in this last year, all of the work that many of you have done to allow us to reach this community and to help people grow, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. And God sees this. I don't know it all. I can't see it all. But God does. God sees those that have given up their evenings to lead a growth group. He sees those who've given up their evenings to help youth come to know God. He sees those that are serving right now in the kids' ministry. I mean, who would do that? Who would get up on a Christmas Eve, or not Christmas, New Year's Eve morning and watch kids? Why why do people do this? Well, I can only think of one reason. Is they've gotten on their knees before God in a serving position, and they've said, I will arise to do whatever you want me to do. And they've had a sense that God has said, well, why don't you help out over here? Why don't you fix this? Why don't you serve in this way? They've said, all right, I'll do that. And they don't do it for the applause. Most people don't see what's done. They do it for the God that they kneel before. So I would encourage you in this new year to use these postures of surrender. As I've said, they've been helpful for me, and I, I, I've... I came up with this list a while ago, and, and I just this last year, actually in this fall, I've, I've started kind of using this more. And I would encourage you to consider this. Maybe start your day with these postures. And the reason these postures, I think, are important is, as I said, our spirits are attached to our bodies. Our spirits cannot make a decision that does not show up bodily. You know, Jesus was surrendering his spirit to his Father, not in theory, but physically on the cross. His body participated. That's why I think it's so helpful for us to take these postures of submission. In fact, what we're going to do as we end this morning, before we sing our last song, in fact, I want to invite the band to come up on stage, and then we're going to pray together. But we're going to practice this together. Uh, We're going to do each of these postures. We're not going to do the kneeling one because we don't have enough room for uh, everyone to to kneel at this point. So we're going to do that in our hearts, but I would encourage you to do the kneeling part you know, maybe at home or somewhere that you've got the room. But as you're seated here, I want you to pray with me. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we surrender this coming year, 2018, to the Father. So first, first posture is what? Bow our heads. Okay? So bow your heads, please. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And we say exactly what Jesus said. Not our will be done, but yours. When our plans are thwarted, 
in this new year. Help us to bow and surrender rather than look up or out in anger. And if we are making or enacting our plans in a vacuum that are not your will, show us and we will stop. Now, close your eyes if you haven't already. And Father, we, we sit still before you with our eyes closed now as an indication that we don't know what 2018 holds. We are as blind to the future as we are to the space right now with our eyes closed. Our calendars are already full of activities and appointments, but we don't know what's going to happen. And we want to be in sync with your calendar. So we ask, Father, that you would help us not to force our sense of timing on the future at the expense of others or what you're doing. Open our eyes, not just to the next appointment we're rushing to, but to the opportunities that you will embed in the flow of time this year. Opportunities to, to love those around us. Opportunities to share your truth with them. And when you say wait, help us to wait patiently. Now, put out your hands, palms up. Father, our hands are open now, and our palms are up to remind us that we can't hold on to anything in this life. Everything that we have, you have graciously placed in our hands. We have so much, and then we wrap our knuckles around it, and we grasp it. But everything we have comes from you. So rather than white-knuckling our way through this next year, we open up our hands and we're ready to give whatever you want us to give and accept whatever you take from us. You know best what we need and what we don't need. Now let's kneel in our hearts before God. So just imagine yourself getting on your knees before God. Now, Father, having surrendered our will to yours, having surrendered our timetable to yours, and having surrendered all that we have and all that we want to you, we now kneel before you as Lord, and we await your command. We ask that you would speak clearly to us through your word and through your people in the coming year. And Father, we will do whatever you direct us to do. We are your servants. And now, Father, in the words of your son, Jesus, we say these words too. Father, into your hands, we commit our life in this coming year. Amen.